of the past two months, trying to figure out what I did to your pastor during my interview at SFPS. <laughs> I assume that I must have done something wrong because while I was delighted to receive an invitation to be with you all this morning, and I'm always humbled when a pastor asks me to stand in the pulpit and profess something, the invitation was one to answer the question, what is the Bible? <laughs> On World Communion Sunday, in 20 minutes or less. <laughs> a big question. And I'm often concerned that degrees and titles might betray me because, after all, I am simply a country preacher trying to make humble contribution. So, whatever I did, I apologize. <laughs> so, I'll begin by saying my offering is insufficient, but I pray that you encounter it with a spirit of grace. Friends, you, you've heard the scripture, and as I pondered this question, what is the Bible, I found myself with Genesis 1 and John 1. And so for a few moments, I want to reflect with you from a topic uh, in the beginning. Both the book of Genesis and the Gospel of John have similar points of, of origin. They both concern themselves with the story of beginnings. And yet neither is concerned with an absolute beginning. In Genesis, this first creation of to narrate the moment when God interrupts the cosmos. Ironically enough, the question of whether God created the chaos and void was something that the author simply is not concerned with. These scribes, these theologians with this specialty in origin, they were not concerned with beginnings, but instead with the formation of a new cosmos an ordered universe out of a pre-existing, all-encompassing matter that has occupied the stratosphere up until this point. Poetic, not fortuitous, to convene this act of divine origin with the extraction of light from darkness. And what most scholars, including myself, believe is that this text is contrived in the theological imagination of a priestly life. That is to say, someone living on the other side of the decimation of Jerusalem, the exile of people, living on the far side of destruction and separation. And if this writer doesn't have a personal memory of this destruction, at least they have inherited a theological and social consciousness of being pushed at and put down. And yet, priestly school has the audacity to draw light, order, and creation out of the darkness. And they do all of this based on a hope in God that is beyond their vision and beyond their comprehension. And still, by the time we get to the gospel writer John, we find some person or some people 
who weaves together a narrative born out of a witness not only to the abuse of the Roman Empire, but also to the reach, or better yet, the overreach of religion to a people. This gospel narrative has as its roots the ways that Jesus' relationship with people should provide the correctness for authority that knows no bounds. So it's fitting that the Bible in Genesis and the gospel writer begin in the same place. They contend with the triumph of the divine over human fallacies, beginning with And they bear witness to the hope that light can prevail in the midst of darkness. So what does all of that mean? It means that in a world where a reminder that Black Lives Matter is not met with affirmation, but with disdain and contempt. In this world where sanctuaries are not safe for everybody. In a world where children go hungry. I believe that in this world, we are standing in the midst of darkness. And it's not simply enough to believe in God, but it is mandatory that we live in the hope that light can be extracted from darkness. What is the Bible? The Bible is the perpetual quest of a people to invade the human narrative with a theology based on life, truth, grace, and hope. And so this is what happens when we read these words and we encounter a woman by the name of Eve whose curiosity about the divine and the divinely created draws her into a forbidden discussion with something that exposes her. We meet all the ways in which our inquisitiveness compels us to entertain things that expose us. It means that when we encounter a young boy by the name of Joseph, whose dreams become his demise, and yet eventually propels him into a greatness that is bigger than himself and his family, we encounter our own dreams and egos and the egos to which they fall prey. And we live with the hope that our dreams will propel us beyond ourselves and that our trials and tribulations, those who might covet what God is doing in our lives, will ultimately move us to a greatness that will snatch life from death and bring deliverance, not just for ourselves, but for those all around us. When we run into Hagar in the wilderness and see her hinge on the brink of death and watch God step in, we begin to believe that God will step in in the midst of our desperate situation when we feel an unquenchable thirst pressed upon us in the most barren and desolate spaces of our lives, when we hear poetry of mothers who mourn their sons who died at the hands of war, we find spaces in worship to mourn all those mothers and daughters who have fallen victim to wars on our streets. And we pray that God will step in and give us a dance in the midst of our mourning. And we see Peter walk on water to get closer to Jesus. We begin to believe in the hope that God too will hold us safely on the choppy waters of life and bring us across closer to God, even if we feel drowning 
in the middle of our deep darkness. And when we watch the weeping prophet Jeremiah cry out as the city lies waste at the hands of empire that cares nothing about people, we turn on our televisions and Ferguson's burns on the heels of empire. We cry. Friends, these 66 books of narratives and letters, poetry and prophecy, lament, praise, worship, they all acknowledge the realities that Trayvon never made it home. They all bear witness that Michael will never see his mother again. These 66 books live with the hope that in the midst of the desert and the wilderness that is sexism, racism, imperialism, homophobia, that the dry bones of Edward Salamaya, Kimberly Lawrence, and the 47 other lives that were snuffed out in the Orlando Massacre, that the dry bones of Sandra Bland and Tanisha Anderson and countless other women who died at the hands of the police and whose names we don't know, that the dry bones of those who died at the hands of an immigration ethos that tries to build walls and take down people searching for a better life. They, these 66 books live with the hope that those dry bones will live again. These 66 books filled with history and mythology, with weeping and dancing, acknowledge that off their bodies sometimes there is wilderness, and at the wilderness sometimes there is war. And it's messy and it's confusing. These 66 books do not suggest that darkness and chaos never exist. They don't pretend that light can eliminate but instead they hope that light reigns in the midst of darkness. They don't suggest that chaos is eliminated, but instead that order can be extracted from the primordial deeper. As Walter Brueggemann suggests, this sacred text does not provide a universal prescription for who we should be. What it does is remind us who we are. It's not a model of where we want to go, but instead and because it does that, it reminds us that God still is. God is still working with us, through us, and on our behalf. This sacred text reminds us that even when our egos allow us to reach for the position of the divine and we fall short, God is still with us. This sacred text reminds us that even when our complacency and inaction yields death to others, God is it reminds us, maybe most importantly, that we have no heaven or hell to put anyone in, and that all people are made in God's image, even when that image is different from our own. You don't have to take my word for it. See Genesis 16 and 21. God has something for a refugee woman and her baby child. Genesis 4, where the blood of our brothers call out from the grave, and we find out that we are our brother's keeper. See Judges 19, where the bodies, battered and bloody and broken bodies of women, brutalized by domestic violence and sex trafficking and sexual violence, they compel us to action. See Matthew 15, 
for a woman on the margins has the power to move the divine on behalf of her children. He asked too, when people gather and the Holy Spirit dwells among them and brings unity in the midst of their diversity. So, I wish that I had enough time to parse verbs for you and outline structure. Wish I had enough time and room to walk through thousands of years of history of ancient Israel and the Greco-Roman world. I actually wish, believe it or not, in all of my nerdiness, that I had enough time to talk about the literature and the contextual understandings of Mesopotamia. <laughs> but I don't have enough time to do the kind of intertextual, intergeographical work, interhistory work that I would like to do. So since I don't have time for that, may I just suggest to you that this book, on which we build our lives, on which I've staked my career, the public journal, the window into a timeless quest to interweave the divine and the human story. Can I just suggest that while we could spend all day making erudite and sophisticated claims about the nature and the content of the Bible, I think that maybe my grandfather's idea.